How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Star Show Podcast, episode 88. Is it infinite? Are you listening to this podcast infinitely? Yes. We're going 88 miles per hour through this episode. Ah, very nice. Very nice. Thank well, you. speaking of fun little quotes and whips from films. Particularly uh, from the 80s. Yeah, well, we're in the 80s right now. Zeke, I have a quote from you from 1988. Okay. A film that I know for a fact you've seen. You love this film. Yes. But I have picked a quote that's a little more obscure. Okay. So, you tend to do better with the weird, obscure quotes. Okay. So, uh, here we go. Let's see if uh, you can tie yourself up. We're three for four right now. Yeah, so, falling behind. I know. Hopefully, you can at least be able to tie again if you get this. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Are you going to put the voice on? <clears throat> I'm going to try. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. That's my, that's my quote. Oh, God. Can you uh, repeat the quote for right. us? There's a, there's a sarcastic tone to this if I'm not conveying that. Okay. He says... Have you seen this film? I have, yes. Okay. Um, Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Oh, I, God. I have another quote that would make it easier, though. But Okay. I want to see. You want to jump to that um, one? Oh, this is a toughie. You're going to have a guess, and I'll give you the other quote. I'm, not I'm, sure. I'm happy to do that. That's like that. That's my thing. I, I, I've, we've both seen this film. We do you have. like this film? I like it a lot. I do, but not as much as me. Not as much as you. You, I think you really love this film. Yeah, I can't get it off the top of my head. Right. I'll give you the other quote. Hopefully, yeah. this, this does the trick. I'll give you yippee ki yay. A yippee ki yay. Well, not a, just yippee ki yay. The man because all I think of is word. Die Hard. With that. it's Die Hard. Oh well, I've never seen Die Hard. What? Yeah, we've talked about this on the show. That's why I've always wanted to do it. You, you haven't seen Die Hard. I have not, but I got it. So that's what matters. I'm so confused right now. I've never seen Die Hard. I check, swear, check my letterbox, bro. I swear. Ugh. See, I just assume all these things. <laughs> yeah, it's on my it's on my blacklist. Jeez, let's see. But I got it. You did, yeah. I'll give you that one. No rating. That's on. That's on me for. Yeah. Okay. So. Got a four and a half star here, four and a half star, and then a few. This is the thing with films like this: is most people saw them long before they got Letterboxd accounts, so a yes. lot of people just tagged them as watched. Mm-hmm. And I gave this film a three and a half star. So I, I like it enough. You only watched it recently, though. I only watched it last Christmas, because it is yeah. the Christmas. It has film. been. It has been on the Christmas debate list. It was. I'm pretty mm. sure it was in the pre-record originally. We were gonna do it, we and did we did something didn't else instead. Yeah, I think it was last. Sco- it was last. Uh, it was. Uh, yeah, it was last Christmas. No, it was uh, the last Star Wars film, Rise of Skywalker. Oh uh, yeah, I think it. Got yeah, because we we're gonna it. do it right before Christmas. Yeah, and then we did. Yeah, we did Star Wars instead. <laughs> yeah, so I never got to watch it. All right, I well, still that, have not. That's fair enough. But oh no, you're right. We have. I do remember us talking about potentially doing it. Mm-hmm. I just assume it's one of those films. Yeah, this is on me. I keep doing this. This is all right. It's four. It's four four now. I'll give you four four. Um, That's fair enough. Because I, I did your, the same with Alien. Next week, week is your last quote. Yes. And then we flip to me. We're gonna swap Throw. it to you in the nineties. That's gonna be really interesting. I really hope I'm not crap at this. <laughs> it's tougher than you think. Yeah, definitely for sure. Especially, Especially if you haven't seen. Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I keep giving you films you haven't seen. But Yippie right. Kaye. 
Uh, Yippee ki and It's pretty uh, universal for that film. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure the scene, the uh, the first quote I did, he's like crawling through the vent. Because like he's now in this situation. Mm-hmm. He's stuck and he says, oh, come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. Like he says a very annoyed Bruce Willis. Okay. So there you go. Well, let's bridge into what we've watched in the last week. Mm. Jake, have you caught many films in the I've last week? I've caught a few films. Let's rotate that. It's funny because I have a theme going on this week. Okay. A bit of a video game theme. Everything, nearly everything I've watched this week, there's something to do with a video game or a video game-esque. That is interesting. So I'll, I'll get into it. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, <laughs> I'm just dying over here. You're dying. And the Infinite 88. So the first thing I watched, or the first thing I'll talk about, is a mini-series doco that recently came to Netflix called High Score. Mm-hmm. So it's a documentary that sort of covers a lot of the more interesting stories of the gaming industry from, I'll say, like the 70s to the mid-90s. So it's a documentary, not a series? Yeah, it's a doc... Well, it's both. It's a. It's like Tiger King. Okay. It actually reminded me a lot of Tiger King in the sense that there's a wider narrative to what they're going in terms of like the console wars between like Nintendo and Sega and um, all of that jazz. But the, much like Tiger King, there's certain episodes where it, it sort of goes on a sideline story. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Like, oh, let's do a random episode where it's like, we're just going to focus solely on RPGs right now. Mm-hmm. Or there's a random episode like, oh, we're going to focus just on fighting games and like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and stuff. But yeah, there is a wider story of, of interviewing all sorts of figures from the gaming industry. I was actually shocked at like how many like real key people they got from Nintendo and like, I think the, the creator of Space Invaders and stuff like that, like they got some real key people. I was like, oh, wow, that's actually quite impressive. And I don't know. I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was quite nice. It has really good world building, which is a weird thing to say about a documentary, but just the way they, they tied certain, like, oh, we're going to interview this person who was involved with this aspect, and they did it with several people, but they did a nice way of the way they edited it to juxtapose it mm-hmm. so it all sort of flows together to this wider story of, oh, the origin of video games sort of thing. And I really like that. It, it, ta- it takes you into a, a more innocent simplistic time of gaming you know now gaming's a bit more uh venomous i suppose you know there's always these arguments about lots of lots of swearing and yeah yelling yeah. And, and abuse and i i've always been a fan of of um in terms of like representation in film of things that are a bit more uh tangible what's the word i'm looking for i, I don't use archaic because it feels a little mm-hmm. on the nose but traditional yeah exactly analog the word analog that's what i'm looking looking for so it was cool to see people like literally pulling um, arcade machines apart and, and showing like the the sort of the tinkering that goes on in there and uh, even some of the there was one guy in particular I want to double check his name here who worked let's uh, oh Sean Bloom so Sean Bloom was a guy who uh, sort of going out of high school he needed a job and he's like oh I could get a job at Nintendo and he applied and what he ended up doing was he worked at this hotline service as a quote-unquote gameplay counsellor. Mm-hmm. So what this is, because we didn't have internet back in the day, you would call this hotline for Nintendo games and you would ask, like, hey, I'm stuck on this part, and then the, the counsellor on the other end of the line will help you like get through or find secret levels or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it's such a weird concept now because like, we just have gameplay online. Yeah, look exactly. It up. But it's like people would literally call into hotlines and there were people with like just stacks of books and they had to know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They had to know every little nook and cranny from every Nintendo game. It's like, that's just insane. So I love crazy. I love that aspect of exploring all those people and those characters. But um no, I thought it was a very fun sort of doco. The uh, the other one I caught this week was Ready Player One, which I've never seen before. How'd you feel, buddy? 
Huh. We had uh, Spielberg's E.T. a we few did. weeks ago. I know. And coming right off of E.T., and I've seen E.T. before, of course, but re-watching it, understanding on such a deeper level, and then now watching this film that he did many, many decades later, I was like, oh, goodness me. So Ready Player One's based on a book. Yes. And the whole concept is, it's about these characters, and they're sort of this VR world that everyone enters into, so everyone sort of knows about this big VR game. And the guy who created it, he passes on, and he's left basically little clues in the game to leave his inheritance to a certain player. And the player's got to like find the keys or whatever to do that. And all that stuff was like, okay, I'm following the story. There's a thing going on here. Mm-hmm. And I liked that they sort of scraped these themes of escapism. The fact that all these people live in essentially this big junkyard. Like mm-hmm. The future looks terrible, but they put the game on, and, and they're in this wonderful world where they're going to all change their avatars and everything. So I love those like little bits of exploration they did. Yeah. And like, oh, the villains are the corporate greed guys that want to charge for the video game and they want to, they want the inheritance and all of this. And, you know, it's a Spielbergian story. So it's like, oh, the, the underdog hero is going to gain the inheritance. And yeah, spoiler alert, it plays out exactly how you expect. But I thought all those themes were sort of diminished by the fact that what you're looking at is this visual vomit everywhere. And hey, look, remember Back to the Future? Here's a Semeckis ball. It puts things back in time. Because Back to the Future is about time. Remember that? Do you remember? This feels very, like, uh, self-aggrandizing. Yeah, it's very... I mean, the fact that, like, there's, like, Overwatch references in it. It's like, what? It's like, Mm. why so... It was just... It threw me off, man. It was just so much junk. Like, the Iron Giant's in it. And he's in, like, the big battle at the end. And it's like, Mm. why? Why is any of this happening? I don't know. Like, I, I got it, and it was like, I enjoyed it while I was like, watching it. Like, I felt like it. they got the rights to a lot of things, and they just needed yeah. to put them in there because they had the rights to them. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, it's a Spielberg movie. Oh, everyone, give them all the rights. All the rights to all these things, and all these, and yeah, all these properties. And I was like, ugh. Whereas a film like that would probably fare from having nothing but original properties. Well, would fare it, better. it just made me want to see a version of this film that was made in the 80s or 90s. Not for nostalgia purposes, but just the way they would have made that film back then. I mean, we talked about Bill and Ted last week, how mm-hmm. Bogus Journey just looks more interesting. Yeah. Because, oh, they had to do uh, weird trickeries with, like, you know, maybe German expressionism in the production design, and hell looks all interesting. And, you know, in the new Bill and Ted, it's like, well, everything's just like, it looks like an Apple store. And we talked about that last mm-hmm. week. And it's like, I want to see what version of Ready Player One could have been made 20 years ago, because it wouldn't have just been all a big computer. It would have actually been a lot of interesting. Well, you sort effort. of look at how compelling Tron is. Yeah, well, it could have. Yeah, exactly. And it's mm-hmm. like we. I mean, Tron's not the greatest film of all time, but no. we can look at Tron and appreciate sort of what it did at the time, and that and there's still a, something that's tangential about Tron. Absolutely. Where it's like the effects aren't great, but that's part of its charm. And again, it's uncanny valley in this film, and it's just, even if you take Tron yeah. Legacy, it still looks quite. Right, visually, yeah. it doesn't feel like an Apple Store. I feel like I think it's a very yeah. good predis. Because I have my problems sh- with Legacy, yeah. but Legacy's production design is pretty compelling. Yeah, it's one of the stronger elements in that. Well, in it's, that. It, at least in that case, it's trying. And I haven't seen Tron Legacy, but at least it replicates the original '80s film. Yes, like it's not trying to be too new. just tidies it up. Yeah, if anything. It's like why couldn't Bill and but Ted it feels like an '80s. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so over to me. Yep. Um, I caught uh, five films, including the film of the week. Um, 
I caught Bobby Sands 66 days and the great hack. I've seen the I've great actually hack. also I've actually caught six and I've forgotten to log one here. I've just seen it. Um I think it's because I watched it late last night. Um but yeah, I've caught three documentaries in the last week. Um and I'm honestly trying to remember the title of the one I just <laughs> just watched. Oh no. Uh, is that a good sign for the film? It was a solid... I feel pretty bad now. Um, I'm going to quickly go to my Netflix and double check that. But speaking about the two that I have logged... Yeah. Um, Bobby Sands' 66 Days involves a hunger strike in the height of uh, sort of the deba- uh, debacle between uh, Ireland finding... Northern Ireland and Ireland finding its independence from uh, the United Kingdom. Um, so Northern Ireland is still tied to the crown and there was obviously this is a big part of the seventies and eighties, um, and sort of follows this man who did a, a hunger strike for 66 days. Okay. Um, it's pretty stylistically 66 days, 66 days. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Pretty, pretty incredible. It's a good way to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. I'm looking, I'm looking for anything. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was a, it was a decent enough film. They they kind of bring in uh, journal excerpts and then put it over sort of a live reenactment of the guy sitting in a cell. Okay, but um, I think it's bridged pretty well. Um, it's just a solid documentary about something I didn't know. Yep. Um, moving more into social media territory. Um, yes. I did talk about the social dilemma last week, and so I watched haven't caught it. Uh, the Great Hack this week, which was last year's mm. sort of. More. This one focuses more on a mixture of journalism and social media. Well, it's more about the election as well, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and Social Dilemma touches on it partially, but focuses more on. They both focus on the sort of this fake news era. Mm. And the third, uh, the third documentary I caught, which I'm feeling really bad that I didn't get the name of it. Um, X Rental. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's a. Uh, it's it's a shame that I can't like. Um, Can you not find it? I can't remember off the top of my head what it was called. I'm gonna have to quickly look through my thing. But anyway, about the Great Hack, I didn't enjoy it as much as the Social Dilemma. The Great Hack got nominated. Didn't it win? It got nominated. I don't think in Oscars. it got. No, I don't think it did. I think it got nominated something. Maybe it was Sundance. Maybe yeah. I mean, this the Social Dilemma was Sundance as well. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I didn't get nominated for an Oscar because I got annoyed. I was like, ugh. Because I, I watched it and it like it didn't count towards my Oscar watch. So I was like, oh, whatever. Uh, here we go. It was Nobody Speak. Ah, was the other one go. that I got. Um, and that one um, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. They focused more on sort of this... It actually focused more on physical media and sort okay. of the transition that we're undergoing with uh, corporations acquiring sort of this and putting it into an online sort of situation yeah. and sort of this death of free press is what that one focused more on. Whereas the great hack, like you said, focuses on, um, so social media's influence and on the election and, and elections and whereas, um, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was uh, a little different. <laughs> That's much. Yeah. Um, whereas this one focused more on, sort of the trials of free press and how um, people in nowadays can uh, pretty much, because of the Trump administration and stuff like that, can pretty much accuse people of fake news or Mm. actually sue the media for defamation much easier. 
the even defamation if of character. Yeah. Yeah. And stuff like basically the media is getting more and more outlawed in what it can and cannot present as news because corporations and stuff can put more financial pressure on press to acquire it. So we're sort of losing free speech because mm. the people owning... It's sort of the Rupert Murdoch... It very much touches yeah. on sort of that Rupert Murdochism where Rupert Murdoch owns such a large portion of the world's media that... It's all coming from a singular voice, seemingly. And yeah, and they talk like about that. certain situations, and it focuses in particular... This starts off with the... Uh, trial of the Hulk Hogan sex tape scandal that happened in 2016, 2017, how he sued the website because of uh, they didn't have the right to put that up. Yeah. Whereas it would then lead on that the reason that they were pushing so hard to have this lockdown was there was actually a second sex tape in which he was using racial defamation and stuff like that. Interesting. That never aired. Um, Which they could then talk about in the post-trial because... It doesn't affect a trial anymore. And it led to this website crashing and going fundamentally bankrupt and him claiming something like $115 million in damages. Mm. So an absurd amount of money. Sounds like he's got to do some crappy movies to make that money back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he you know, he made that money. He won it out. Oh, right. I'm getting mixed up. You're correct. Yeah, which sort of the... Um, and I found it quite interesting. Now we can uh, do Marriage Story 2. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> uh, so they were the the documentaries I caught. Did you catch anything else during the week? Uh, I did. So I got one more duo. Okay. In my gaming collection. That's good. So I quickly jump into that. So I watched, and finally, I watched the two new Jumanji films. Saw that. I've been avoiding them. And it, you, I think we sat on the same page with both of them. I yeah. Think I might have been a little bit nicer on the first one than you, but the second we were. Maybe. I mean, I I actually I liked the first one more than I thought I would, because I think there there was a few. Things. I still don't think they're anywhere near as good as the original Jumanji. And I have a very specific reason okay. why. So we'll get into that. But no, actually, I found Welcome to the Jungle quite enjoyable. I mean, I found them both enjoyable. I was actually interested in the, the characters, not the the video game characters that they become. Like, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Karen Gillan, my girl, who gets plenty to do in these films. I'm mm-hmm. happy for her. But Aquafina's in the second one, too. Yeah, she is. She does uh, She does the accent. with um, very funny. <laughs> it's a great cast they bounce of each other so well they're very entertaining but um and i yeah like i said i even like the kids like the actual kids between the game segments i actually like them and it was funny to see them being replicated the only thing well actually i'll go even further the thing i really liked at first i was like oh wow they're actually doing this is they admit that this is a straight up sequel because they actually showed the board game from the original and i I hate that they don't just say it's jumanji 2 and jumanji 3 Right, like yeah, it's annoying. I just hate colon titles. I just don't. I don't like colon titles. Or at least if it was Jumanji Two: Welcome to the Jungle, then it's like now we definitely know it's a sequel. Because you're right, the first yeah. it, this is a hundred percent. It's not a spiritual sequel. It's a direct sequel. Well, it is because you're right. They show the the board game, and then the, we they show see, the transformation. We show it turns itself into a video game to attract people, which makes me. Is this secretly a horror film? <laughs> it's a, it's a creature. It's basically it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're entrapping children with enticing video game stuff, and then... I definitely think, especially as someone who funny. watched all three of them in very close proximity... Right. Um, particularly the first one, there are definitely... I think the other two are a little bit more gamey, cartoony, but the one with Robin Williams, that one's got kind of horror-esque elements to it. I could argue it was a very softcore horror. Mm. 
Well, I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that. I think number one, you spend more time with Robin Williams, and you go with the emotional beats that he does. So when he's trapped in the game, he's trapped in the jungle for what, 25 years, mm-hmm. and then comes back. We're with him on that journey, and the film takes the time to that it sympathizes with him. He's just lost all this aspect of his life, and that gets paid off at the end. And we were even talking about this earlier today with some of our friends. We were talking about Jumanji for some reason. Mm-hmm. And how well, um, there's a thorough Jumanji debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I gotta re- I gotta rewatch Zavora because I want to see how it fits in with the rest of these films. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, there's an emotional core with that, where especially when Robin Williams comes back and he hugs his dad, and he completely forgot about the dispute that they had before, and it's, it's a very emotional scene. Then he meets the kids again, and what I love. Uh, that's why I love the original so much, and this one doesn't really nail that so much. There's less tension. I think it focuses more on identity than. Yeah. That one focuses more on a family dynamic, whereas particularly Welcome to the Jungle focuses very much on self-identity. Yeah. Which I think they both touch on identity, but it's for different reasons. Like, there's definitely a family dynamic in the first one. It's obviously mm. a very much a father-son um, at its core. That's that's the, the, the result. Yeah. Um, well, it's Even, because it's more of a teen comedy, the new one. So it's like, oh, well, they're teenagers. They have identity issues. So we're going to put them in these roles as, oh, look, the, the scrawny kid is now Dwayne Johnson. He's big and strong and muscular, and that's fun. Yeah, and, it, and, yeah. and the, the guy who is big and strong in real life is Kevin yeah, Hart. Yeah, he's Kevin Hart. <laughs> um, and I, I think that it makes for... I think the other two have better comedy, like the newer ones have right. better comedy. I found myself the first laughing. One's, yeah, quite funny. I laughed a lot. In in the with the Robin Williams one. No 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 with um Welcome to the Jungle. Okay yeah yeah I I actually didn't find the original Jumanji that funny. It was way more honestly. I think, it, I think it's less an overt comedy. Yeah. As opposed to the new ones, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably correct, and I think it's that that comes down to casting too. I think uh, there have been a couple of movies now with Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson, and they just play off each other comedically very well. Yeah. Um, it's very acknowledged now that, yeah, they're like a comedy duo sort of thing. Yeah, uh, and I I think that the other two play off their elements really well too. Um, I think Jack Black's really funny. And it's one of He's my, funny. Him probably doing one of my like, favourite Jack Black films. To him doing like, the, yeah, the young girl obsessed with the phone. He's really great at that. Just like the scene where he like peas for the first time and he <laughs> has a dick it's just really yeah. funny no uh, that stuff's all great i think the it, comedy's way more uh, but they had a good dynamic in the second one with donald glover and uh danny devito i think they make funny uh <laughs> danny is quite funny yes i mean that, that was part of the reason why i wasn't a huge fan of the second one though is it just felt a lot of the same it fell into a lot of sequel traps feels like a the sequel you traps. Know, hangover part two big like let's repeat the same thing again but even uh, the the well the, the arcs fa- are not as they're not as profound or even as thorough. They're very much like we've just got yeah. to have another level with this. And you probably think there will be a third one. Well, they teased the third one because yeah. like the the animals got let loose at the end of the second oh, one, yeah. and they walk out of the restaurant. I watched that but that second one in uh, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, saw that in Canada. But um no I think, yeah I think the second one yeah just a lot of traps I, I found it funny there was like the Fantastic Four Silver Surfer thing where they all change they grab each other and they change bodies and roles over those you know the, the, the two time the only two times I've ever seen a movie by myself were both in Canada I saw Little Women and I saw that by myself oh. I didn't know I mean I've, I've I'm, seen I'm, way I'm more halfway across myself. half across across the world so I had no one to go see it with that's fair the the only other thing I want to point out 
um, which I thought was a big disappointment compared to the original Jumanji, was that when they enter the video game world in, in the new films, it's a separate world. It's completely removed from the world that they know. And even in the sense of, like, they didn't do the Wizard of Oz thing, where it's like, oh, the principal is now in the game too, and it's mm. the same person. And, and the original... It was a thorough does the same thing. Like, it, it immerses yeah. the house in the world. Yeah, exactly. They bring the house into space, so there's a bit of it. In the original, they have, like, a jungle sort of forming over the buildings. They're, the monkeys steal the cop car. I guess that comes with... But I, like I think that they justify it at least, though. It's justified, but because it's, obviously it's just the, way with less the trans, with the transformation. Yeah, yeah, but I, I actually like it because it gives a fresh dynamic. I don't think it would have had the same effect had it been immersed in the world. And it looks like the third one, like you said, that they're teased is going to be That's more true. like the first one. That is actually very true. So I'm saying the third, the, the third original new one. Film. So technically, the fourth one is going to be a lot like the first one. So unless Savora counts as the second one, in which the fourth one is the fifth one, ugh, and the ugh. fifth one will be more like the first one. Yeah. <laughs> so I think they are coming back to that original dynamic with the with the. See, that would be end. cool. I was just. I was... But I like. I actually like the fresh, and I like they use it more for comedy, which they couldn't do that as much with the live system and mm. such such as such. But I do agree that there are different there are different emotional beats in the first one that aren't touched on in even the the second or new first one um, yeah because they're not trying to be that film because the be jonas fair. the like nick jonas's character who plays the mm. pilot is technically the robin williams equivalent um, yep yeah, that's a very good point but because, we don't have enough time to we don't really he doesn't have the same well feel he the time of him passed for him robin williams in uh the original the original one is a fish out. He's teleported back to the world, whereas with Jonas, he kind of gets back to the future. He gets sent back to when... Yeah. So it's a little Which, different. Yeah. They get... That, but that's the thing, because he's not the main character, and that's not what the film's about. They're like, oh, we'll just send him back to his own time. It's fine. But yes. If he was the main character, it would have been way more interesting for them. Oh, he gets sent back to I think, but it would be more of the... Or... You'd argue that could be more of the same... Whereas at least they were trying to do a fresh dynamic. They were trying to do a teen comedy, and I think they achieved yeah. that. Yeah, they're not they're not bad. I don't think either of them are bad. Yeah, I, I really just... enjoy. I actually really enjoy the uh, the first one. The second one, I'm I do agree, it suffers the uh, the sequel problem. Yeah, there's nothing really wrong with it. I wasn't sitting there being like, oh, what you know, this plot point doesn't make. I wasn't like that, but I just didn't care either. Yeah, I, yeah, I like the kid characters. I want to know more about them, but. That's not what the films are really about. <laughs> I about agree. It's about The Rock making fun of Chris Hart. His smouldering <laughs> looks. <laughs> that was really funny, actually. Every He did the smouldering look, and it, all the girls would get attracted to him. And Jack Black's like, ah, oh, no. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, um, okay, so to finish off, I watched two... I guess this is my indie section of the week. Okay. I have um, one indie section for you. Okay. But, um, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. To finish me off, I watched one that was very promising and one that uh, I hadn't can't think of many positives to come out of it. So Uh-oh. I'll start with the negative and finish with the positive because I'm an optimistic guy like that. <laughs> um, so Sundogs, a film a directorial debut by Jennifer Morrison, who... Sounds familiar. Jennifer Morrison has been in a few things here or there. Not really a... She's a television actor more so than a uh, 
But she's had bits and bobs here or there in terms of uh, uh, films. I'm just looking at a couple of her films. For mostly, I think she's just been in very smaller supporting roles. She's in Bombshell. Yeah, Bombshell. I don't know if she's a is she a major part of Bombshell. I don't think so. She's not one of the main three girls. No. Um, it's, it's basically yeah. She's just been in bits. She's in Warrior, but I think she's once again she just plays sort of like the the girl love interest that gets kind of put into the the background because Warrior is very much about the three main men in it, which are Tom Hardy, Edgington, and and Nick Nolte. Yeah. Um, she's in the Star Trek films. I don't know where she. Yeah, is I'm just checking. Right, she plays uh. We own a Kirk. Is that like? Oh, maybe Kirk's it's the mum. Mum, yeah. But she's in both of them. I don't know anything about Star Trek. I'm just the the, the biggest know. thing I know Jennifer Morrison from is honestly she has a, a season in How I Met Your Mother. Okay, she's one of Ted's love interests. That's cool. Um, that's probably the most. I think that'd be from a mainstream point of view. That'd definitely be her that'd most. Be the IMDb. She is most famous for. I would say such. so. Um, this is a directorial debut. Um, it involves a man eager to serve his country, but rejected by uh, the Marines. Pairs up with a young runaway to form an unlikely team on a misguided adventure. He's got a mental uh, injury. He, um, it pretty much... It's strangely kind of... It's, it's relatively competently shot. I think it's not... Like, there's nothing potentially wrong with how it's shot. Basically, this... Guy is obsessed with 9-11 and obsessed with serving his country, but... I swear we talked about a very similar film. I might have talked about it last week on the show. I don't think it was last week. It was a few weeks ago. You were someone who was, yeah, obsessed with, like, military or something. Maybe I've watched similar films. I'd have to look through. It sounds similar. I don't think it's the same movie. This one's strangely inertly racist. Um, You know, it's set in 2004 and obviously is obsessed with 9-11 and they kind of... He's very much stereotype Islamic people. Hmm. Um, they the film's kind of convoluted, doesn't make a lot of sense, um, and just comes off kind of quietly, like I said, quietly racist. Um, so this is Sun Dogs. You're yes, about. I swear to God, you've talked about this before. I might have talked about it in a previous week. I'm looking through I'm seeing, my. Yeah, I'm seeing if you accidentally like logged it twice or something. But I haven't. <laughs> That's so strange. Maybe I've talked about you off the show. No, I swear. We're, maybe, maybe I dreamed it. No, there you go. I have you those deja pre- vu moments. Wow, know? what a terrible dream to dream of it. <laughs> you talking about Sundogs? Um, and yeah, look, performances <laughs> are, are fine enough, um, but nothing really that interesting. Right. So I think that I'm just left with just the film comes off kind of racist. Right, and, um, and just sort of categorizes. Oh well, these and, and it's honestly, its ending's very anticlimactic, and it's sort of left with I don't really know what the point of this film was in the first place. Um, Big yikes! You don't want to hear that. Uh, exactly. <laughs> now, in contrast, I also watched a film directed by one Lynn Shelton, who I've actually seen. Lynn Shelton. Lynn Shelton has actually done both of the Mark Maron comedy specials. Um, and I have talked about Mark Maron oh, on okay. the show. Yep. Um, I quite like Mark Maron. Um, he's in, he's probably most prominently stars in Glow. Um, and he was actually in Joker very short, smallly. He's the director of the show, De Niro's show. Oh, uh, he might be like behind De Niro in a shot. He is, something. he yeah. is. And I, and I don't get why... 
De Niro really takes that scene and it's like, why are you even in this film, Mark Maron? He was also in a he film called... might be called... friends with Todd Phillips, I don't know. Potentially. Um, he was also in a film I talked about earlier in the year, Sort of Trust. But this Outside In, um, I really enjoyed it. It's... And I'll just redo the logline, Jake. Mm. Uh, an ex-con struggling to readjust to life in his small town forms an intense bond with his former high school teacher. See, the first half sounds like the Welcome to Marvin that we just talked about. Well. <laughs> yeah. See, this is why my brain is like blowing me in the head. Outside in, I know um, what that actually was. stars. <laughs> it, it was directed by Lynn Shelton. She, she's pretty great and produced by the Duplasses. Hey, we, very nice. And also stars Jay Duplass, who okay. um, not our boy Mark. Mark was the one in Blue Jay. So, um, and Tangerine. Mark, Mark is also oh, in. Uh, produced it. Sorry, big one. Mark is also in Bombshell that we just mentioned two seconds ago. Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize that. So, oh wait, no, I did. No, I did. I did know that. I really like Jay Duplass. I don't know if I enjoyed him as much as I did his brother in in Blue Jay. This right. film's definitely from the, a performance level. You're talking about. Oh, it's pretty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think he gave Blue Jay four, and this is three and a half. This is great. This is a great little. Uh, it feels. It feels like a Duplass film too. Okay. Um. It's on Netflix right now. It's a good little uh, little gem on there. Is this what you've been looking for the whole Netflix? I'd say this, this is this whole this time. Is, maybe this is the 2020 gem. There you go. Whereas Blue Jay was the 2019 out, gem. Um, I really like it. The performances by Duplass and uh, Eddie Falco, who plays Carol, who's the high school teacher, right. is really really solid. Um, and it's even got Caitlin uh, Diva from Booksmart in it. Oh, okay, Endeavor. Endeavor. Very Endeavor. nice. Yeah, Endeavor. she's great. I was rooting she for plays... her to get an Emmy this morning, but I don't think she was nominated for Unbelievable, okay. which is a shame. Well, but she fun... she plays the daughter. Oh, okay, nice. And she's great in it. Yeah, I, I need to watch more stuff with her in it. Um, another fun fact, since we're talking about the Duplasses, is Sarah Paulson from Blue Jay is actually the person who plays Nurse uh, Ratchet in the new spinoff, which I hate the spinoff, but good for her. The spin-off. It's a once uh the one flew of the cuckoo's nest spin-off Nurse Ratchet, right? TV show, which I, I hate that it exists, but I'm glad that she's in it. Okay, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I'm really really chuffed. It was a nice nice little film to get a hold of. So that's what I've watched this week. Beautiful. Well, I've I finished my round of video game related films. I only watched one other film this week, and it actually leads perfectly into our film of the week because it is also directed by Antonio Campos. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually his feature debut from 2008, premiered at Cannes. Uh, the film's called After Class. And um, see, this was a this is a fascinating film in its own. It's even more fascinating when you look at the, the direction that the devil all the time takes. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that momentarily. But this film is the, the polar opposite. I would never in a million years have guessed that these two films were directed by the same person. So, essentially, the idea and the the, the sort of the logline was what really enticed me. I was like, wow, I really want to watch this before I watch his newer film. Is essentially uh, this kid in high school. He accidentally films the deaf drug overdose of these two twins that attend the school. And the school asks him to edit the memorial video. I was like, that is a brilliant premise. Because like, right off the bat, it's like, oh, what... You automatically assume, like, oh, he, well, he's got the footage of their death. Is this going to be like a weird, crazed film? Where it's a pretty cool premise. It's a great premise. And they kind of shot themselves a little bit because one of the things they did was everyone already knows that he accidentally filmed it. 
that's like public knowledge. I was like, that would have been way better as a secret if mm. nobody knew that he had had that. Or maybe much. like a close confidant was the only other person. Like there were two people. In yeah, there. well, well, the, the, who the, the principal or the the video audio teachers like, hey, do you do this more. The fact that that person doesn't know, that would have been fascinating. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think the film ended up being a bit about something else. Like that was sort of the logline, but the film's about something else. It 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 feels like a Yorgos Lanthimos film a little bit. It feels like a Dogtooth-esque film. Mm-hmm. It is so slow. It's 100 minutes long. It's 107 minutes long. Uh, there are incredibly long takes like, okay. everywhere. It's very simply shot. Everything's sort of out of frame on purpose because I guess it's trying to simulate him being a like a, a film disjointed stu- yeah well exactly and, and, but him even not being a very early adopter of film he only he's only doing a film class because he doesn't want to do a sports class um it's look it's really weird like there's absolutely no DNA from this film that you would find in the devil all the time those films do not match watch and that's completely yeah. fine it's interesting but Again, because it's a very long... I mean, it's 100 Maybe minutes. Maybe he's a director that hasn't quite found his footing yet at that point. Yeah, well, it felt like a budgetary thing. Like, oh, it's cheaper to do a film with lots of long takes and quite simplistic framing. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of extras in it, so mm. it was like they did that. But that it kind of felt like it was done for the cheaper end of it, of like, oh, for the convenience. Even though I think it fits the story, but it's also very, very... Long. Like, you could easily shave 30 minutes from this film. This could have been an 80... 75 in the film mm-hmm. and it would have probably benefited it because it's very slow and I, yeah. I was engaged enough but once those things started happening of oh we filmed it but everyone knows about it mm-hmm. so there's no tension there. yeah exactly you know and we see him actively shooting the the video and I think it ends up being a bit more of a commentary how you know public and private schools sweep a lot of things up mm-hmm. and I thought that was really beautifully represented that the kid edits a video that's I think it's due to his lack of knowledge. Like, there's no music under it. He leaves in cuts of teachers being like, oh, can I say that again? Like, it's really roughly edited, but I think it was a nice commentary of, oh, look, here's someone that's exposing all the errors and flaws of this school, and they opt for someone else to edit the video, and it's all clean, and there's beautiful music, and, you know, everyone looks sad when it's (laughs) like they kind of had to put on the face of being sad for the video. Yeah. So I liked all those aspects, but it... (laughs) It was just hard for me to pinpoint what was this film actually about because there's a lot of those things going on and it's very slowly paced. So I ultimately walked away being like, I didn't like it all that much, mm. even though there's a lot of clever ideas in here. Um, I I don't know. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting if he can have a bit more clarity in the film of the week. That indeedy. I like that. Well, that, that's all I've seen for the week. No worries. Well, we can quickly bridge into... Do you have anything to add for career updates? Um, I'll just do one little shout-out Okay. for this Saturday, the yes. 26th of uh, September. forgot what month it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do uh, that too. So, yeah, exactly. If you go to the Backlot Perth this Saturday, I think there's two sessions. Gina Williams and Guy House are performing there live, so if you want to go and see that. And the reason I'm giving them a little plug, a little shout-out, is because I'll be there recording the whole thing. Very exciting. Recording... I think there's a live stream planned. I'm not quite sure. I think they're seeing mm-hmm. what the situation is with tickets and stuff first, but um, that's very exciting. So if you want to go there this Saturday, I'll be there with my big old sneaky camera. No worries. <laughs> well, it's time to move into our film of the week, but Jake, what are we watching? This week of the show, we're watching The Devil All the Time. Happy birthday, Happy Arvin. birthday, honey. Happy birthday to you. 
This was your daddy's. Brought back from the war. Fears time to pass it on. A young man is devoted to protecting his loved ones in a town full of corruption and sinister characters. It's a very broad title. It's a very broad title, and I think when you watch this film, you, I guess you know why it's broad. There's a. This is a much more ambitious film than it than it reads on paper. <laughs> I'd say so. Um. Yeah. So this film's a, an interesting one because you know you look at the the cast and you're sort of kind of slightly blown away as to its size. Really huge cast. Yeah. Um. Talked a bit about it last week actually. And you know it's a. Uh, it's got some. Uh, it's got uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, one of its uh, key producers. So oh, um, I was going to say, I didn't see him. This is a Netflix <laughs> exclusive, correct? I believe um, it is. I think uh, Netflix. I guess they funded it, or that was released within the last week. So yeah. I watched this. I think the day it came out. You did. You watched this very quickly. Um, I think I just got lucky. I think I was just had a free night, and it was conveniently up and. There you go. Uh, I watched this mid last week, so I've had a good digesting time. Yeah. Well, I watched it last night quite late, so I've had a little less digestion time than you. But I'm I'm very excited about the conversation we're to have because we haven't talked about this film at all to each other. Nope. Um, may I? I guess we know each other's letterbox ratings, but um, this is, for me, this is just one of those films where there's a lot that I like. But the further into the film I got, the more I was like, eh, there's some stuff that's bugging me and. It's bugged me now. Now that it's over, it's like it still bugged me. But I, there's a lot of great ideas in this. Mm. Film. That's that's what I'm going to start with, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair, uh, a fair um, assessment. Mm. I'm I'm interested to see how. Um, just looking at Campos's, uh, he doesn't have a very big repertoire. No, I think this is his third, maybe fourth feature. Um, yeah, after, he, after had, class. he had. Uh, Christine, uh, that Simon looks interesting. Killer. Christine, and that's pretty much it. He said he had a fifty-eight-minute film called "Buy It Now," um, mm. but yeah, in terms of features, you would say clearly defined. This is the fourth, okay, from him. I would say uh, with a couple of shorts here or there, um, and this is a big cast, and for a lot of them, particularly Tom Holland, this is a very big film for him at least because yeah, in a post Spider-Man world this is the first real inkling we've got to see him outside of that realm yeah I, I don't think I've seen him do anything other than Spider-Man I've seen him in things prior to Spider-Man but nothing post um, which is what because most of the time he is he's a I think I talked about Lost City of Z last week oh yeah, um, yeah okay. which actually also has Patterson in it um, in a supporting role, but he has a much more minor role in that. That's very much a Charlie Hunnam and probably Patterson uh, duet. Um, whereas this film is very much, he plays a big part in the second half of the film because this film is just over, it's two, two and a bit it's hours. It's like two hours, 18, something like that. Yeah, and... It's not a short film. Holland doesn't come in until about halfway mark. I think about 45 minutes. In? Yeah, and and then uh, Robert Patterson even further. He's close to an hour mark. Because that's something I noticed early on as well, is what you assume is going to be the prologue. It's like, oh, this little prologue that introduces us to um, you know, certain characters, Bill Skarsgård's character. 
mm-hmm. and and then we're going to jump into the thing and it's like you spend way more time than you were expecting with this Bill yeah, Skarsgård only... and the young Tom Holland. In the there. only consistent characters that are there from pretty much start to finish are um, the characters played by uh, oh, Clark, it, and, um... Clark and Clark uh, and I think it's uh, I'm going to say it's. Uh, Haley Bennett, so Charlotte. Haley Bennett, yeah, that's the one. Um, Charlotte R, it says. <laughs> and they're the only ones who appear post to post. Um, but it, it's it's an intriguing one because I think this film is trying to lay out uh, sort of the problems with hereditary um, psychological problems. It's a certain. I think it's talking about stuff that is quite tradi- uh, traditionally based, based in a lot of kind of early 20th century literature where it's starting to talk about mm-hmm. the religious implications and the cyclical nature of families' hereditary problems tying to things like religion and, and wealth and, um, you know, the cyclical repetition of, of problems faced by different generations of the same family. Um, I think the ending, and we're not going to spoil it yet, of course, but I think the ending supports a lot of that. And I, I think you're right. It's very generational in mm-hmm. terms of sort of the, the venom that trans translates from generation to generation. I mean, Tom Holland's a perfect example of that in this film. And then you're right, the religious aspect. I mean, this is a very anti-religious film in a lot of ways. I tried thinking, I'm like, is there any like bright side to it? And I think this entire film is just full of characters and full of themes that are just very dark and there is no bright side or there there's no washing over it. There's just a lot of really messed up I, stuff in this yeah, movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a film like this, although I enjoyed it and there are a lot of things I like about it in particular, the performances are some of the, the things mm-hmm. that I, I definitely take away as biggest positives. I have my problems with the story and I do think this film suffers from films like there will be blood being out there, which are vastly, mm better films talking about relatively similar concepts. It's funny you mentioned There'll Be Blood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, there's no, like, insight or anything, but I, I specifically wrote down that this feels like an eerie mixture of There'll Be Blood with free, board, free billboards outside every Missouri. And it feels like Fargo, but with all the fun of Fargo taken out of it. Mm. Fargo, it, it's So you've just brought and... up three films that I can agree I think I probably enjoy more. Interesting. Even three billboards? Maybe not three billboards, but the other two definitely. You, right. I, I, we've talked about you, you You religiously like three billboards. I think, I think three, three billboards, billboards is competent. <laughs> <laughs> and then Top that's the problem. I don't think right. it's a bad film. Well, I, but even like just tonally, I, I totally compared it to it, where it's like, man, things just keep getting worse for these characters. And same with Fargo, but the difference with Fargo is they have, you know, the, the Minnesota niceties of the dialogue. And you have characters like Marge, Francis McDormand, who are uh, who are just a superior McDermott performance. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. No, but it's just just a wonderful, nice character. And the point is that she, because she's nice, she gets a happy ending. Whereas you would argue there's not really a. Whereas in this, it's kind of depressing how everyone's Everyone's so bad, messed up, everyone's evil, everyone's brainwashed. There's no. And then those who are innocent are manipulated very easily. Yeah. And really, the the only character... I guess there's only two would be Bill Skarsgård's wife. Yeah, and I'd say Holland, but... 
you would argue what Holland yeah. does is borderline sadistic too. So well, funnily enough, because me and my mum actually watched this before I did, mm-hmm. so we had a. I was like halfway through the film and she was going to bed, so I we had a conversation and we were talking about Tom Holland. Is he like a victim in this? Is his actions motivated? Because you know he beats up people just like his father does, but it's in service of protecting his little sister. So th- I'd say Holland's a, great... a redeemable character. Yeah. Holland's like the neutral. I would say. Yeah, chaotic neutral. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because the, there's nothing that he does that isn't justified. Whereas you would argue other characters, like both of the preachers. Yeah. Um, One of them played by Dudley <laughs> from Harry Potter. I was like, oh my goodness. Dudley. It's Dudley Who's, from Harry Potter. I couldn't tell you who Dudley was. He, in... was, he was Harry's little shitty, like, stepbrother character. Oh. He's lost a lot of weight. He's lost a ridiculous amount of weight um, <laughs> in this film, but yeah. Harry Melling. That's him, yep. Yeah. Um, the only other character I'd say was Eliza Scanlon. She's sort of pretty innocent throughout the film. She doesn't really do anything. But then he's like her mum, a victim to exactly. religion. And That's stuff. why I threw brainwashed in there. Yeah, I was like, brainwashed away. So- save myself there. So <laughs> I think, yeah, I. for me, that's... That's definitely what I got, particularly in the first half when you've got Melling's sermon, where he yep. does that crazed sermon. You just you feel like it's like Campos just watched the Dano version of it. <laughs> exactly. And I think there's something way more profound about Dano's uh, rationale in, in There Will Be Blood. There's a good... I mean, we you can go back to our episode 80. Uh, 80, that's one. Uh, to talk, uh, where we talk about that quite a bit. Um and I think this film is victim to things like that. And I think your three comparisons are actually all pretty sound comparisons. Three billboards took me a bit of processing, but I agree with it to an extent. Characters do get severely damaged over time and have to have to live with it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's definitely just like a tonal, eerie um, comparison more than anything else. I, f- I yeah. think Fargo is more like a story comparison. Circle of violence in three billboards. There's definitely... Yep, for um, sure. Most characters don't get happy endings. You know, um, a character and quite burns abrupt down a... endings too for yeah. quite a few of them. Character uh, burns down a police station. The billboards get burnt. Like the characters just at each other all the time. Yeah, in the yeah. Film. and that's characters what I got. Characters kill the, themselves uh... in the mid movie yep. sort of thing. Yep. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I can yeah. I can see. Um, and yeah, obviously the religious ties are hugely implied in, in there will be blood. It's a big. Yep. It's a huge dichotomy between capitalism and, and religion. Uh, which were two big conversation points at, the, at mm. that time. And this is a similar situation where it's a post-war world yeah. where it almost feels like it's a bunch of characters in a small rural community who have dealt with this post-war life differently. Mm. Um, and I think it starts when they do that introduction dino, dino scene between, yeah. uh, you know, Skarsgård's first interaction with uh, his wife, who I'm his wife to be I'm not really sure I don't remember the name of the wife I'm trying to remember oh Charlotte is it Charlotte I think it might be Charlotte so maybe uh, Riley Keough is the oh yeah Riley Keough is the one that's uh, Jason Clark's partner gotcha but she's also in that intro scene and we really get the four uh, the four of them sort of have their introduction scenes between their respective partners mm. in that scene and the pathways are different I mean, we, we actually get... They cross over occasionally, obviously, um, with one of them heavily tied to sort of the more religious pathway and the other one sort of just in sort of chaotic madness sort mm. of way. But they're both 
got degrees of insanity in different ways, whether it was brainwashed by religion or sort of brainwashed by Satanism and weird, uh, weird deranged fetishes, basically. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting because, like, all of, yeah, there's so many different storylines going on. That's why I said it felt it was very ambitious at that point. I think it's well edited enough, even though the pacing is, I think, pretty bad. I think the pacing's really bad in yeah, this film. Yeah, it's not structured very well, I, I think. That's one of the shorter comings of the, the film. Yeah. Now, I think it's, ed- like it's edited comprehensively, but I it's think not the narrative... Tenet. We can follow the narrative, but... Yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. It's... I think that... Yeah. Because they're trying to make this genera- intergenerational story... But they, it's, yeah. There's a lot of years they've got to get through a lot of characters, and, and I don't think certain characters, certain characters age drastically. Like Holland goes from a child actor to Holland, yeah. And yet some other characters, like the police officer, who are I didn't realize it was meant to be him, Sebastian Stan, exactly across the two different yeah time. Jumps. And yet there's probably nearly 15 years apart, and you can nearly I think, barely I think it was tell. Seven. I think they said seven. 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 Okay. But even that, that's just the the last jump. This was several years before even that, because we we see um, we see Bill Skarsgård before Tom Holland's character is even born. I think his name's Arvin. Yes, the kid. Yeah. So that you're right. We're There's jumping a lot of like fifteen, sto- twenty character years. Thread stories, to, and obviously the yeah. the police officers got his ties to uh, Charlotte, who's he's self. He's very much aware of what Charlotte and her partner do. They yeah pick up hitchhikers and and make them have sex and then uh, with their partner and then kill them because uh jason clark's character of carl likes taking photos of them um i feel like a lot of that stuff is kind of rushed because here's the Mm. my problem one of my biggest problems with it and it lost major points for me this film is i can't pinpoint the problems with any of the performances because i feel like all the performances are really good it's the convolute. It's kind of the borderline convoluted stories. It, it feels like it's like you said. It might be mm. a little too overly ambitious. Maybe something like this might have been serviced better by an actual longer film. I've read people and, say it should have been a mini series, which I can't argue. Yeah. But on, on the same tone, you know, like the pacing was is not there. And here's the thing, because I I feel like it's. I agree with you in, in terms of some characters get really underserved in this film. I think mm. there are several characters in here that just feel so one-dimensional. It's because we don't have enough time with them. And I guess we're going to get a little spoilery here. Yeah. Um, but I guess a big spoiler for them is like most of these characters are dead by the end of the film mm-hmm. and killed off in quite vicious ways. I think Eliza Scanlon... Some of them are killed off in very close succession towards the end of the film too. There's yeah, and two it or kind three characters of, that die. It kind of got laughable at a certain point. Because it just felt like every, ma- like every every five minutes it, something horrible happens some, to someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of them I was even confused as to who was dying. I was a little <laughs> bit like, who just died? Like you right. know, like for me it was like there were notable deaths. Like Clark, whatever was going to happen to Charlotte and Clark was always going to be a notable death. Um, but even that felt like that scene felt a little too quick. I feel like Tom Holland gets out of that situation a little too convenient. You know. Yeah, but it's but it's all to set up that final shootout with the police officer. It really. is, yeah. Which is kind of yeah, kind of the problem um, that it feels like Holland accidentally he goes on this killing tear, but half of him he doesn't even intend to kill. No, most of no. them he doesn't even intend to kill. He only intends to kill Patterson's character. That's yes, yeah, the only one. Um, and 
I think. But again, it's like he's killing Patterson because here's me. This is all plot. This mm. is all plot. No matter saying you want plot in your film, and it makes sense. But how f- in rapid succession that all of these events happen, mm. where Eliza Scanlon kills herself, and then Tom Holland wants to get revenge, so he kills Patterson, and then he starts hitchhiking with you know those two, and then he kills them. And then the brother of the girl sees that and gets angry, so he chases Tom Holland. And it's like, this all happens in the last 45 minutes of a near two-and-a-half-hour film. That's why I thought the pacing was so off. It's a very... Um, I think what this uh, what this film is indirectly trying to do is it's trying to follow... Uh, I would actually argue it's trying to follow two... Well, I think what happens is that meeting at the at the, the cafe, that first meeting between yep. Skarsgård and his wife yep. and Charlotte and Jason Clark's character of Carl is trying to show this parallel journey that both these families are going on while intricately weaving between the two, because there's obviously um, Clark and, and Charlotte do pick up uh, the preacher, Harry, Harry Melling. And they're yeah. the reason why I'm calling Melling him is Dudley. <laughs> Dudley. Uh, but but then, here's the thing. I think that scene was really good because you, you playing with, with a Dudley. I'm just going to keep calling him Dudley. Mm-hmm. You see it from his perspective. You're just as shocked as he is when you're like, wait, what's going on? He wants me to sleep with her and he's got a can Like, that all I think was really excellent and took its time. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the later on and with other characters that you just say, all right, and get through that, get through that, get through mm-hmm. that. They're dead, they're dead. Story over. I feel like um, what they're also trying to show is this, this family's kind of poison self-poisoning because of its uh uh devout uh dedication to religion yeah um and i think you're right this is a hugely anti-religious film and it doesn't pull any punches mm. between Skarsgård killing the dog and then <laughs> uh, killing up. himself yep. all in service of saving his wife who dies anyway on top of that you've got um the obviously the brother of Skarsgård's the one who's into the uh, who marries the preacher and the preacher ends up killing her. Yeah. Uh, and then you know you jump a generation. Then you've got Holland and obviously Eliza Scanlon's character. Who can starts... we stop killing her, please? <laughs> in all of these movies, can we stop killing? She had her? a rough life. She died in what baby teeth. <laughs> we didn't do. We did. Do we? Do we do? Do we do Little Women? We didn't do an episode on it, but okay. That that's fair game. That's a novel from hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Spoiler alert, she dies. A <laughs> in lot. That too. She dies a lot in all of these movies. Um, and obviously, she becomes a victim to Patterson's uh, womanizing ways because we see him with multiple women over the course yeah. of. Well, see, this is again, Patterson, great performance. He's a great performer. But there was no time for him to develop other than just, oh, he's that creepy preacher that sleeps before these women. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. There's I think no that's third the, dimensionality if anything, that's to the, it. That's the core problem with this film, is it's got a lot of really great performances which you couldn't pull punches and not even necessarily bad writing, just sort of rush writing. And I think you're right. I think making this into a series might have been the, the better route to go, something mm. that gives you more time to really flesh out the generational, sort of the self-imposed generational hatred this family has on itself. And yeah. it's all rooted in its, really, its lust for religion and and the only person who actively rejects religion in this whole family is Tom Holland's character. Yeah, because of the events of his parents. Yeah, even Eliza Scanlon, who her mum died mm. at the hands of a preacher. Yeah. 
um, who she, she doesn't know that, but at least she's very dedicated to going seeing her mum's grave, to praying. Yeah. The only reason Holland goes to the church is because it's just Gallen, to protect because... her, and mm-hmm. he's a good big brother, stepbrother, I guess. But see, he's a cousin. I... He's a cousin. Are they cousins? Yes. Yeah, but they they call each other brother and sister yeah. though. But he, that's the thing. I thought it was very clever how yeah they both came from equally sort of broken homes if you want to call it that broken religious homes yeah well exactly and and their different responses to that mm-hmm. where Eliza Scanlon's character takes that like, she still has such a devotion to religion and mm-hmm. praying and Tom Holland is complete... blindly following the preacher because and that's what well, I'm just saying immediately suspicious of him as well of of Robert Patterson the preacher yeah no, but this is what I'm talking about is that like I was saying, it's that hereditary sickness that was often talked about in sort of genealogy and stuff like that from early 20th century literature and stuff like that, where it's very much that certain psychological problems or dedications we have, we don't even, just because we weren't raised by our parents, it's almost imprinted in our brain. Mm. And we have the choice to either psychologically embrace it or reject it. And obviously we see with Holland and Scanlon, one rejecting and one embracing. Yeah, well, I, I just I thought it was a very clever juxtaposition between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you that. Um, I, I but, and yet and yet I would still argue that Holland carries certain heredi like hereditorial traits from his dad, and it comes well, back to yeah how he handles those girls harass uh, those guys harassing. Her. Yeah. Well, uh, this is this actually leads perfectly to my next point because you're right. We see we see that he's very much taken these tendencies and these lessons from his dad, mm-hmm. um, and that was a great scene even when when it is Bill Skarsgård and he goes and beats the crap out of them and the dog's yelping. I like that scene. Of course, it, Tom Holland does a very similar thing. But that transitions perfectly into, I want to complain about the voiceover. I thought the voiceover was really unnecessary. And you can, I feel like the voiceover was a, two things. I, I think that, I'm not sure if this, was this based off a book? It is based off the book and the author is actually the narrator. Okay. I'm trying to bring up his name because I just deleted it like a like an idiot. Like who the narrator was? Yeah. Um well who yeah, the uh, narrator. Donald and, Ray Pollock. There you go. So he also wrote the novel this is based on. Okay. And That's, I think Antonio co wrote this with his brother, I guess. Another Campos. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice family film <laughs> making this lovely family film. But that the reason I mention it at that particular scene mm-hmm. is because there is voiceover right before Tom Holland gets out of the car. And in my head, I'm like, oh, that's very clever. He's he's doing what his dad did. And then the voiceover has to come in and be like, oh, just like his dad, he pl- he meticulously plays. It's like, I didn't need that. They were going, <laughs> I, you could tell they were definitely going from, even from the earlier points, it was very much like, we're trying to tell this film like it's a story. Like, it, they went for the story. Like a wider approach. story, there's the narration. I, I completely and, get that. Yeah. Um, I don't like it, though. I'm with you. <laughs> I think... Something like this is very didn't need the narration at all. Like from start mm. to start to finish, I didn't think it was important at all. I think that sh- the great example is that scene because they show the shots back to back of Holland cleaning his knuckles, and then they show Skarsgård yeah. doing the same well, thing. Just the visual echo. I was like, I, yeah, you didn't need any of it. It's like I got it. Yeah, <laughs> I got what. The, the generational... Inher- you're right, the heritage that they have. And, and that's... A, that's Yeah, I think that that was a stylistic choice. Maybe that might have been a late choice by them, even. Perhaps. Like, a choice that maybe they watched the film and they thought, 
this is not cohesive enough. It doesn't bridge it enough. Um, I think it was there from the beginning just because of the author's involvement with the mm. narration. It feels like something that they did it's as sort a of how I feel. It's the same thing on. I felt about like with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, why is Kurt Russell suddenly narrating the film? Right, yeah. Um, it's just... Same sort of problem. No, I completely get you. I always forget he has one line of narration the first 10 minutes. One. And then he doesn't come back to the last act. It's so weird. It's very weird. That makes it even weirder than, yeah, than just him being at the end. But Yeah. I'm I'm with you. I, I thought that at a point. I was like, okay, this is cool. Because you're right. It's it's a part of the world building at the beginning of the film where they're establishing the religious connotation with the, with the town and the people. And it felt like this wider story. And again, that's why it feels so different from his other film, After Class, which is so bare bones and blank in comparison mm. with this one's like there's always music there's always voiceover there's always something happening in the edit there's a, there's a lot happening to keep the train moving yeah. which I appreciated but I think the voiceover was, was too much we didn't need it even okay. it was a nice nod um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah I think we can talk a bit because we, we've talked a bit about sort of the, the interconnected characters and how that all comes about like I said I think there are certain like Robert Patterson's so one-dimensional and that's not his fault as a performance it's not the fault of the writing like the specific dialogue beat for beat writing mm-hmm. it's just he literally doesn't have enough time in the film i mean you mentioned how late certain characters introduced into the film yeah and i think that comes back to the problem with the broader scope yeah um i think you know and i don't want to be like a tooting or like a old horn here but you look at there will be you look at there will be blood and they keep it pretty much to three characters really three or four major yeah. characters you know it's dano uh it's you know daniel day lewis and it's the son yeah and that's the three important characters and dano from post to post carries the whole thing whereas this there are two preacher characters you know there's we have to finish off what you happens you have to have each generation represented with yeah. the preacher yeah I, yeah, it's it's that push and pull because you're right. Like you, to to have a story of this scope, you need to introduce characters late in, and that at times it feels like an anthology a little bit. Because until I agree, I think that's a really yeah. good comparison. It does feel like yeah. an anthology at times, where it feels like we're watching almost two or three films stitched together. Yeah, especially because the things that tie them together has happened sometimes really late into the film. And maybe something like this would have benefited from an anthology film rather than a like a collection of three or four smaller films yeah. that in loosely tie together. Because they, they, I wouldn't say that there's all that much. That ties them together, apart from sort of repetitions it's very of stories. Loose. Like the physical things that tie them together. Oh, he killed my sister, so I'm going to chase it. Like that stuff is so thin. Yeah. Those the, the 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 metaphorical, sort of wider thematic connections are very clear. Like the religious mm. connotations and the, the devotion to religion, the dangers, and all and it of might that. have benefited from having maybe two or three different directions. Mm. Um to tell this sort of story you know it would have been a cool more experimental platform to take whereas this film feels weirdly uh incoherent in parts you know in terms you mean what yeah what in terms of uh just in you know like like pacing and yeah stuff the pacing like that. yeah crazy bad. um <laughs> where it goes from yeah it's just inconsistent like you almost feel like Holland should come in at the same time as the preacher cat. You know, there, there needs to be a bit more alignment, it feels like. Um, and then if you look at the first 
like you said, it's the first hour of the film. We're telling the story from, we pretty much conclude Skarsgård's story and the young, uh, child actor who plays Tom Holland's you know, yeah, younger self. Arvin, Arvin and then we immediately yeah. cut over to, uh, you know, Snelling and, uh, his wife's story from the same day hmm. that they, they left when it was the last day that, uh, they would see her. So they go back in time. They go back and forth. There's a lot, a lot of lot of jumping. Yeah. I forgot how much jumping was in it. Um, Especially that first half. I, mean, I think after that, once, once we introduced to Tom Holland, like that age of Arvin, I think it stops jumping at that mm. point. But I all, could see the this, pacing like, gets worse after. I was that. about to say <laughs> maybe even a maybe not even a, a mini series, but a two part series might have benefited from this having a clearly like a stop point like if you watched right. this was like a netflix two part series where it was like a you know 100 like minutes it, 100 minutes it, and it, it chapter two <laughs> maybe even with the time jump yeah. in between yeah i yeah i don't know i think there's look it's i don't think it's a bad film at all no i think that you're right the performances are great i think the moment to moment stuff and camera works pretty solid camera works great the i think the thematic elements are really excellent i mean again i i'm like this is a really dire film in a lot of ways. There's some really good tension building in certain scenes, particularly the stuff with Jason Clark and uh, Riley Keough. Whenever the couple are with one of their victims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just There's some the great stuff. It's just the wider picture pacing of it is like, oh, this could have been better. This is, It could have been better in that front. But that, that I'm, it's one of those things where I think someone could just go on YouTube and just re-edit the film with literally all the footage that's just there mm-hmm. and I think they could create a compelling or a more compelling version of the story where the pacing's a little stronger and it feels like there's like narrative thrust and there is narrative thrust but it's so like I mean the, the fact of the matter is the reason the, the moment I realised the pacing was so off was when Eliza Scanlon accidentally kills herself she does change her mind at the very end uh, and I checked the time and there was only 45 minutes left in the film and I'm like, this feels like the end of the first act in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's because so much of the beginning is stuffed with all the backstory, which I think is very important, and I'm glad that it's there. Mm-hmm. But it, it just feels like the third act is so rushed, and it, it, it squeezes all of these horrific things like murders and rapes and like revenge stories and all this stuff in the, so mushed together. It's like comically comically paced in no, that way. I, think I don't that's know. Fair. I'm going to go on a limb and say they could have made a perfect short film from just the first 30 minutes of this film. Everything that leads from the beginning of this film to Sebastian Stan discovering the, the dog tied up on the cross and the dad and the, the wife are dead and he turns around to Jan Arvin and he says, you know, what in the world's going on here? I think you've nailed the themes of the movie at that point already. <laughs> like, look how far... It's a very the- good... Um, if you'd call that the first act... It's not even. It almost feels yeah, like the uh, it's a prologue. prologue. It's a prologue. <laughs> it's a thirty-minute prologue. The end of the first act should be Eliza Scanlon accidentally hanging herself. Please, guys, can we stop killing her? Please, she's really good. Give her, a, give her the ending. Well, I guess she's in the last scene of Baby T. She gets called ugly. She's not ugly. She's not ugly. Well, guys, by, by what the teenage the, the, the teenage bullies are like, <laughs> like tell her to put a bag on her head and stuff. I'm like. Yeah, they're, they're teenage bullies in the seventies. Fuck them. Yes, it just was a bit much. It was like, my god, like they're cr- really not even remotely close to ugly guys. Come on. Yeah. Well, well, Tom Holland sure showed them. 
He's kind of a badass in this film. He's awesome in this film. He's Think of that, that whole thing where he's getting the paper bag and he's punched in the face. Well, it's great that he, he did Spider-Man because, like, he's buff. So, like, in the nature of this story, him being, like, really kind of buff and strong. But I would say he's lean buff. He's not, like, Chris Hemsworth. No, buff. he's not. But, like, like he's ripped for it, like, a young... He's basically our age. Cool. And he's ripped for... It's depressing. That's <laughs> 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 like, crap. <laughs> no, but, like, it actually works really well with this character because you kind of believe it. Yeah, I, for me, I think the the biggest positives I get out of this is I don't think Patterson needed another film to prove himself. I'm willing to just be like, okay, there's another good performance from Patterson. Like you said, I agree. Little one-dimensional. There wasn't much, really. This he was very... I actually thought... Um, yes... Uh, what did you what's his name in Harry Potter what do you call his what's his name oh Dudley Dudley <laughs> Dudley I'm gonna use his actual name show him a bit of That's respect right. it's Henry isn't it uh, I think it is Harry Henry uh, Harry Melling <laughs> Harry okay it's um, I think his preacher although a little <laughs> close too close to Dano's preacher in, in There Will Be Blood was probably the more compelling of the two and had a bit more complexity to him right but I still thought he was quite one nose. He was just religious fanatical um, and didn't really... It almost... You know what it feels like? It felt like almost like Patterson and and uh, and Melling's... Harry, Melling. uh, Harry Melling's uh, preachers were split in half and then together would have equaled Paul Dano's preacher. <laughs> like you've got the selfish uh narcissistic like the sound of his own voice elements in patterson but yep. you've got the religious fanaticism of selling and together that's what dano's character is and there will be blood he has both right which makes him more than one dimensional and way more compelling and interesting to watch and i think that's the problem yeah in, in terms of character breakdown oh, because I... it's very clear especially towards the end of film and there will be blood mm. dano was just using he liked the sound of his own voice and he used right. religion and he, he believed in the stuff, but he really believed in it solely to enable the power he had over people. Mm. Whereas Patterson, they, they make very clear because of the narrator, he likes the, he's always liked the sound of his own voice. He would have never won a fist fight, but boy, can he make people eat out of the palm of his hand? Oh, thanks for telling me that. And it's like, <laughs> okay, we have his character profile. Whereas the other one was, you know, religiously fanatical to the point where mm. he was willing to poison himself and didn't understand when he got poisoned why he was. And in his right. delirium thought that that meant that he had to kill his wife in order to resurrect. He thought he could resurrect that's, someone. That's a brilliant scene, though. It is. But um, again, it's part of that. The first 30 minutes, is it perfectly encapsulates the idea of this film. That it's very anti-religious, which... Again, I was kind of looking for this is what so I guess we can get into the ending now because I was looking for that that moment. I was looking for a Black Klansman moment. Mm-hmm. Let me explain what I mean by that because <laughs> it's a bit of a random film to throw out there. Mm-hmm. The film very anti-religious, but it takes place in the past, you know, sixties, seventies. Yep. So I was like, okay, is this a story being told in reflection? Is the film suggesting that we've learnt from this point? I think it's more geographical based. Like the, they they very much picked. Where the location that they picked for a very specific reason. Well, it's a deep south. Exactly. And my thinking is, okay, but if this film takes place in the 60s, 70s, is it going to do the Black Klansman thing? Where at the very end, it's going to flip it, flip a switch and be like, oh, but we're still this crazy and religious today. I think it's a very good comparison, yeah. And it doesn't. No. Nope. Which I like. It actually kind of... It, it's a little less meta in that way. It actually it sticks straight to the story of, you know, Tom Holland. He's sort of directionalist 
and he's dozing off, but he doesn't want to doze off. Yeah, but even just the idea of you know they play on the radio like oh join the army kid you want to join the army and he's like I can't my dad did that I can't do it because my dad did that and sort of the opposite inflection of of he's trying to break that generational cycle I suppose mm-hmm. but he's almost locked himself out of opportunities because like he can't do that he can't return to his family because he's just killed a bunch of people mm-hmm. <laughs> which I mean, he's like oh jeez. Uh, yeah, it it was it was tough. The, the thing is, he leaves those little um, what is it that he's leaving from the dead bodies? The photos. Yeah, the photo. Yeah, he's leaving photos. So he, he's trying to let the people, like the authorities, who find the bodies, he's trying to clue them in. Like, there's a reason I killed these people. They're these horrible religious nuts, and they're very bad people. So I guess that's sort of a positive angle on it. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to the, another problem with the narrator being like, mm. oh, well, we'd hope the law would see that these were lawful kills, not... Right, yeah. Like, it was very like, ah, see, this is what he's trying to do. And it's like, we've seen what what uh, what Jason Clark was doing. We yeah. saw a whole scene with him literally, like, we cut to one of them naked and he's, and he's shot his dick off. Like, there's a literal shot of that. Um, I thought it was just... funny when Sebastian Sand finds the photo. I'm like, that's like the one photo you found. It was like the worst one. Yeah. <laughs> They're both naked. <laughs> and it's like, you know, so we get what he's trying to do. Yeah. And even in the scenes, like when Sebastian Stan's like hunting him down, he's like, I didn't, your, your sister was doing all these horrible things mm. and you let that happen. He's and, very de- uh, and, and, unhinged in that scene, isn't he? Yeah, and, and hunting it, down Tom Holland, and it very, and it's and Holland's with all the kills. Bar Patterson His and kills, yeah. Pat, I think just Patterson is the only one he shot first on. All the others, yeah. Were well, armed. he brought the gun into the church. Yeah, the and others were self defense. Yeah, all of them. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess he only kills four people. That's not bad. <laughs> well, when three of them are four, all four of them are pretty horrible people. Yeah. Um. Except his sister. The hashtag save Eliza Scanlon. <laughs> so I think it's, yeah, it's it's got it. It's a, a, a film that, for me, the biggest, the biggest positive is seeing that I can see Holland outside of Marvel films. And... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the whole thing is, like, he did uh, Billy Elliot, like, the stage play when he was younger. So I was like, I, I, I know that he, he was, like, a well-known actor in that realm before being theatrical is different though to screen though you know oh, it's different but like he it's not like they just pulled a random kid who could do a, a backflip it's like he's actually had some performance no training. no but it, but it comes back to depth and also breaking breaking of the mold like mm. would he just become the guy who was spider-man it, it comes right. back to uh, a lot of things you know a lot of it's not just him it's uh, various uh superhero actors for the longest time are put in a mold and put in yeah. a put in a role and they can't escape the, the thing that made them a lot of money i mean for the long for a couple of years that was patterson yeah couldn't escape twilight he was twilight man so and it took nearly a decade for us to finally get to a stage where we no longer even think of them in the same yeah. vein i've there's still people in the the batman comment section like oh he's bloody twilight got there's still people out there and real. that's what i'm saying it's like so he's it's... in like four major films this year <laughs> but now we can finally be like yeah like you know i watched like if anything you look at things like tenant mm-hmm. you know whatever we can say about tenant it's like he's a big part of that and yep. 
that's a Nolan film. That's like you've you've really started to break the ground on that one with him. And for Holland, he hasn't had a film post post Spider Man yet, and this is the first kind of step in that direction. Mm. Um, I do I think this is the one that he'll want to be remembered by. Probably not, but you know it's it's still early. You know if you look at look I'm back sure he's at, proud of the film. I think it's pretty. He's one of the best parts of it. Mm. I think. Um, He's in good company in this film. I mean, there are Patterson films out there that don't get a lot of talk. And they've just been other films that he's just churned out, you know. You know, like, not many people talk about The Rover and stuff like that. Like I, for, I forgot Tom Holland was in Onward. We did Onward. <laughs> we completely forgot that. Yeah, but he's a voice actor. <laughs> yeah, it's a little yeah. different. It's not like we didn't see him in that role, you know. In this mean? film, he is a man, which is the other thing. You know, up until this That's point, Holland point. has been a kid. And the new Uncharted film, he's going to be a kid. So whoa, Sully! And this this yeah. is the first time. Although he's a young man, That's a good he point. definitely exercises way more masculine behavior than we've ever seen him do before. Well, he doesn't spend the whole film being like Tony Stark. What do I do? Exactly. <laughs> he's like, I'm and I think shoot these are the roles that the he would like to slowly push towards because he's not going to look like a baby forever. Mm. It's just like not biologically possible. So you know, I think you. You know, in this film, although he's a, a still a young man, he definitely exerts a dominance that we had never seen in his performances before. For sure. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of cool. Like he has a rel- like a quite a gusto voice in this film. You know, and he does a pretty good accent. Yeah, I'm usually bad at accent. I, I usually can't tell you a good one from a bad one, but I it sounded great in this were, one. There were no problems in this one. Yeah. I couldn't think of one. I mean, he he's got he does the accent on Spider Man anyway, so he's he's pretty much nailed different American accents at this point. Yeah, and I I think this is just this is just the start of the proving grounds that we're, you know, I I'm not even going to look at the Uncharted movie. I'm just going to throw that to the side and put that in with the pile of. We're going to have to do it when it comes out. Oh god! Just because like that's my life. <laughs> it's Uncharted. Okay. We'll do you have anything there. else you'd like to add? Um, I want just one little thing I noticed. Okay. Before we do a highlight scene, I thought this was interesting. Because we just talked about it, this fashion saying hunts him down for shotgun, and it's a pistol, the pistol that Hitler shot himself in the mouth with, versus a shotgun. Well, it's, it's a not, joke. It's, it's not a joke. joke. Yeah, it's a joke. It's just a luger. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. remnant of World War Two. Yeah, exactly. It definitely it reminds me of World at War. Actually, that gun. Mm. I don't know why. Um, well, it's quite a big deal, especially for Americans to get that sort of gun, because a lot of Americans were based in obviously the Pacific over yeah. Europe. Well, and even the personal connection that it's his dad's gun. Mm-hmm. He's passed it down to him. But what I love about that scene when he's given the gun at the like a birthday dinner thing, his foster dad actually... He, I can't remember the exact line, but he says something about What's that. What's his like, granddad, oh, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it's, oh that can make sense. Mm. Yeah. I got the whole, like, that interconnected family bit confused. Yeah, they're, they're, but, they're grandparents. Gotcha, that makes sense. But yeah, he, he passes down the gun. And he actually says something along the lines of, like, oh, you would rather a shotgun, wouldn't you? Or, like, you you do better for, with a shotgun. He's he like, prefers a shotgun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says something like that. I'm like, oh, that's clever, because then it's him against the shotgun at the end of the film. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, a little, that was a little, like, that was a lucky shot, though. For Tom but Tom. a lot of them were. There were a lot of lucky shots. I mean, the whole, like, the... In a film with a lot of dead characters, he has a lot of plot armor. <laughs> uh, like the blanks. Like he like like oh, yeah, Jason Clark's character loading up with blanks. Yeah, I mean that makes sense though. I guess. I guess. It's fine. I would have preferred it just not be loaded. Like she freaked out. That's, it wasn't yeah, loaded. Yeah, that's true. Because blanks are like, where do you buy blanks from if you're not buying them from like a movie prop store? Like they wouldn't sell blanks in a gun shop. 
Well, I'm sure there's this. Maybe, maybe they would. Yeah, I don't sure know. I don't own a gun. I'm Australian. <laughs> We're Australian. All right, was yeah. well, What's your highlight scene for film? I do like the montage where Holland beats the crap out of those three bullies. They are some. <laughs> there's a pretty well shot action scenes. They're creative. They let the camera roll. I like that. Um, and they really do. Like I said, they exert this sort of dom, like domineering masculinity that I've we've sort of not really seen from Holland before. And I kind of like to see more of that because that feels like we're showing range. He, like you said, he's not the kid that's going, what do I do, Mr. Stark? Or spend kill mode. Like that's, that's the version that, or in the second one, he's just like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do without Mr. Stark. And then he just sees surrogate hey. dad, Jake Gyllenhaal. And he's yeah. like, Oh, hi. And then, he, and then he turns to his Emmy winning girlfriend. Give, give me a kiss. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> Um, I like to see this sort of side of it. Another solid performance from Eliza Scanlon. Um, not quite on the baby teeth level, but oh, stop to be honest, killing she's, her. Not, she's not given as much time in this one, obviously. Um, yeah, I think all of the performances, like we were saying, they're all solid. If not, they are absent of more time. I think something, I think some of the suggestions we brought to the table in terms of, uh, suggesting this could have been a really good anthology film or mm. uh, anthology series maybe would have been the more bridging yeah like maybe a four-part netflix series or something I, like I that i think there's a version of this film that's yeah two two and a half hours and it's just much better paced i think yeah, there's a version this, that exists. this film could have pushed three hours and it wouldn't have felt too bad um maybe but it's an the anth- pacing would have to be better though to get to a free i think you could get the pacing better if you had more pa- I can't believe I'm suggesting more padding in a film um, I think it's because yeah, I, it's I, such I, an <laughs> because it's such an intergenerational thing you're allowed to have that padding you know you take a film like you know I talked about a few weeks ago Scarface which is such a huge monolith film. it's a three hour film but it goes by well and that could have been a film that had victim of pace but it takes yeah. place over 10-15 years Scarface yeah. it's not a quick rise to power Goodfellas is the same, you know, the sort of, yeah. you know, generation... Goodfellas very w- I mean, w- quick, 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 that film. What, Goodfellas? Yeah, like, a lot happens really quickly in that film. Yeah, yeah, but, they, I mean, Goodfellas is over the course of, I think, 25 years. Yeah, it's like, big, it's something. Yeah. It's a big jump. And then we even take something like The Irishman, it's over 50 years. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> but did we ever feel like we were slowed up in the pace? I mean, there's a whole... A celebration scene in the Irishman that's like 30 minutes in length but we never thought the pacing slowed down it's such an intense 30 minutes yeah but I think I think with pacing it's not necessarily just the length of it but, but I think it's like well, we're I, in the narrative like are we that's why I use the word narrative thrust a lot because I like the idea that things are really coming ahead and this film technically does have narrative thrust it's just it, it just happens so quickly and so late well, in the film I also think Scorsese's one of the best to somehow manage to turn three hours and get three hours of narrative thrust out of his yeah, stories he knows what he's doing he but, just but does it's also he... it's also a story about this one guy about De Niro's yeah. character so it's sort of it's easier to keep it Whereas, throttling in the right spot un- unfortunately for this director Antonio Campos and obviously we're only going off the two films we have seen between the two of us yeah I don't know if he's capable of doing three hours and it having the same sort of thrust ability as something like I mean we saw it with De Palma he could do it with Scarface and, and we can definitely say with Scorsese it's been mm. proven even in the modern day because we both really enjoyed Irishman so much and that film is three hours 29 
three and a half hours. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's <laughs> actually unbelievable. It's a big film. I like um, it. Whereas this film does feel quite slow and lethargic, and it's only two ten, so mm. um, or two eighteen. So um, to talk about my highlight scene, well, you I said the montage. The the montage is good, or maybe Patterson's death scene. Okay. Where Holland's sitting in a couple of pews back. That's a great scene, yeah. And he goes on and there's he, good tension building. He that slowly scene. reveals that he's been following him. He repeats the. Yeah. That was a great scene. It's funny because I, when I watched the movie, I finished the movie last night. I was like, I don't know what my highlight scene is. I couldn't, I just couldn't think of what I liked, particularly through this discussion. It's like, okay, well, the, the scene when when Dudley falls into the trap is a big. I thought that was really well done when he gets shot off mm-hmm. the the riverside or wherever, wherever they're at. Um, I do like Tom Holland beating people up. That's fun as well. Um, yeah, I guess it's not a highlight scene, but again, it's one of that first thirty minutes. I actually think achieves so much more than the rest of the film achieves mm. with even more time I don't know I just I think that first 30 minutes is like really great storytelling I think the film has uh, is anti-religious but it's anti-religious in the way that constantly characters are calling for divine intervention in their lives mm. and they never get the answer to it um, you know you look at uh, uh, I'm not going to call him Dudley I feel really bad um, Harry uh Melling? Harry Melling. Mm. Um, you look at his death scene and the obsession hey, with his characters... His first role was Dudley. He should be proud. Yeah, every char- You know, <laughs> a lot of the characters before their death are obsessed with looking at the sky. Um, mm. And there are a lot of shots of the sky, which is that sort of call to, particularly in this film's connotations, is that call for divine intervention. Yeah. Um, he asks, is this how it ends? And he's looking at the sky, he gets shot in the head. Even Clark... In his death scene, he was looking at the sky. Scanlan looks at the sky. Yeah. There's clearly a very much a well, she she uh, she uh, her, she looks up into the inside of her head because her eyes roll inside her head. Oof! Because she's choking. And... Jesus, dude. <laughs> uh, so sorry. Uh, so there's clearly a, a call for divine intervention, and yet they never get the call. And the only characters that outlive this this are the ones who aren't dedicated to religion. So it's very clear that mm. Holland's re- rejection of religion and that sort of divine uh, blind following that his family has suffered is actually what leads to his survival. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, look, I don't think at the end of the movie he's an atheist. I still think he's religious at the end because because he's talking about, like, you know, good men and bad men and all of that. So, so I think maybe he's still the, able to separate them. Yeah, maybe that's the thing, though. That's what he's what the conclusion of the film is trying to show, that it's not religion that dictates if a person's good or bad, it's how people use religion in their lives. Yeah. No, I like it. Cool. I like that. Well, The Devil of All Devil All the Time is currently out on Netflix. Netflix. No worries. Well, now we're moving into what's new in cinemas slash streaming platforms. Over to you, Jake. Uh, yes. Why, why, thank you, Zeke. Over to weather. Um, pretty slow week, thankfully. Not a lot comes out. Uh, on cinemas this week, you got the high note which is a superstar singer and her overworked personal assistant presented with a choice that could alter the course of their respective careers. This looks like one of those like, fun... That's Netflix? Uh, no, this is cinemas? coming to cinemas. Luna? Uh, I think Hoyts. I guess Luna and Hoyts. These are quite broad movies, actually. Also coming to cinemas is Cats and Dogs 3, Paws Unite. Did you ever watch Cats and Dogs when you were a kid? I watched the first one. I yeah. didn't realize it was a sequel. Yeah, I, there's let three of them now. Yeah, let alone three. <laughs> yeah, Cats and it? Dogs, I think, was one of... Spy Dogs. Hmm? 
I think I watched. That's one of those films. It's like Mouse Hunt. It just got repeated yes. in my house. It's a perfect example. Time. Yeah. Um, that's got Jeff Goldblum in it. The first one. Oh, really? One. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, he's the dog There's... scientist who's trying to cure like oh, allergies or something. That makes sense. That makes sense. But this is like pre. Was it I didn't Lou? Really was know... the main character Lou the dog? That was the dog. Yeah, the main dog. Yeah. But Jeff Goldblum's the a dad. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, oh my God, you're right. He is too. I was thinking of like the dog scientist. There's like a wacky dog in it. I actually you're think right. the voice of the cat is one of the voices of the guys in Mouse Hunt. Well, one of the main characters in Mouse Hunt. That would make sense. Yeah, look, it's on Letterboxes. No, oh, Goldblum. I'm definitely right about made, Goldblum. I made sure to log it. <laughs> Many years. Anyway, but yeah, there's a, there's a third one coming out. Fascinating. Toby Maguire is the voice of the dog. Oh yeah, no, I yeah, I did know that. I do remember that. Yeah, go back. It, it makes sense. It's crazy, man. We're learning a lot. So anyway, the third one comes out at the cinemas. If you want to catch a classic next Monday, the 28th at Luna, there's a double screening of Blade Runner and The Matrix. That's a good coupling right there. And also coming to Netflix this week is Enola Holmes, which sees Millie Bobby Brown play the titular character as she searches for a missing mother and must use her sleuthing skills to outsmart her big brother Sherlock. Played by Henry Cavill. I'm kind of keen on this one. I want to. I want to see this what it's about. Interesting. Yeah. That's it. There's not a lot coming That's out it. this way. That's it for the week. Well, there's not... plenty coming out next week, Zeke. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> you get your fix. Right. Quiet, calm before the storm. Exactly. People are still trying to get over the fact that Friends just got added to Netflix. So. You see, I saw a commercial for Friends, and I was like, "Are they seriously promoting?" It was like a Foxtel thing. Yeah, it's like, ten, it's ten, been... all ten seasons on Netflix now. <sighs> I can finally watch it yeah. next to The Office. <laughs> no worries well we're not watching any of those next week on the show <laughs> but Jake what are we watching excited for this one Zeke we're watching Aeroplane or Flying High stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Hey, Larry, where's the forklift? Forklift! It's over there with the baggage water. Airplane. Airplane is drama. Uh, this is Dr. Brody at the Mayo Clinic. There's a passenger on your Chicago flight 209 or a little girl named Lisa Davis en route to Minneapolis. She's scheduled for a heart transplant. I want you to make sure that she's kept in a reclined position and that a continuous watch is kept on her IV. Ted Stryker, a former pilot who has a fear of flying, finds himself burdened with the responsibility of landing a plane safely when most of the crew and passengers fall sick due to food poisoning. Now, Zeke, that sounds like quite a serious scenario. Yes. But this might be one of the funniest films of all time. Wow. (laughs) I'm planting my flag right here, sir. This film is bonkers hilarious. I have never seen this film. Mm. Um, so this is a big deal for me because I like my parody films. Oh, it's um, a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> and this is one of the few kind of parody films from the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s I have not caught. Yeah, so I I grew up with this film, much like like The Wizard of Oz, and so it's uh, a weird like comparison, but this is one of those films that like, we just watched repeatedly, 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 and it's just so funny, man. It just I I don't know. I'm excited to rewatch it for the podcast, and uh, well, I'm just having a look through all the directors and the directors. There are three directors for this film. Oh, fair point. 
I guess that uh, kind of makes Jerry sense. Jerry Zucker, Jim Abrams, and David Zucker are the ones credited on Letterboxd. I apologize if those are incorrect. But, yeah, for the most part, obviously, I think the sequel to this is The Naked Gun, or is it like a... I feel like The Naked Gun... Is that what... Uh, that I don't what... know if it's a parody. There is an Airplane 2. I know that, which is not as good. We own Airplane 2 on, on DVD, actually. Okay, well, I didn't realize there was an Airplane right. 2. You're yeah. right about the directors. Yeah, so there's Airplane 2 is called the sequel. I think the Naked Gun's unrelated okay. to, to this. It's got the same actor, that Leslie gotcha, Nielsen, gotcha. I'm pretty sure. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah, Leslie Nielsen, yeah, he's great in it. Well, Robert Hayes is actually the main character in this, but obviously you've got to give top billing to the to the big guns. Okay, well... And he delivers the famous line. Don't call me, Shirley. <laughs> Well, I'm very, I'm very excited to jump. To yeah, jump I'm excited to. I mean, I like my parody films. I'm a big fan of Blazing Saddles and mm. Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, I like the Mel Brooks ones. This obviously isn't Mel Brooks, but I think it's in the same vein, or at least inspired by those sort of films that made fun of different genre motifs of their own respective times, mm. the westerns and the fairy tale ones. I didn't think there were that many airplane films out there, but there we go. Um, oh, what to do a parody? Yeah, to I mean, justify a parody's existence or I mean, a spoof. I mean, they did Vampires Suck based on, like, one Twilight film. I, yes. They somehow made a film that's worse than the but Twilight But most series. people do hail <laughs> Airplane as the one of the, if not the best, spoof-slash-parody film of all time. So, yeah, very keen to finally tick it off my list. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Airplane-slash-Flying High.